Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and 18 through 26. As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his kiosk for collecting taxes. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what this means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. While Jesus was speaking to them, a ruler came and knelt in front of him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and place your hand on her and she'll live. So Jesus and his disciples got up and went to him. Then a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his clothes. She thought, if I only touch his robe, I'll be healed. When Jesus turned and saw her, he said, be encouraged, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that time on. When Jesus went to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the distressed crowd he said, go away, because this little girl isn't dead, but is asleep. But they laughed at him. After he had sent the crowd away, Jesus went in and touched her hand, and the little girl rose up. News about this spread throughout that whole region. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. In her book, High Conflict, which Naomi Hunter recommended to me and I read quickly and is also on your recommended reading list for the summer, Amanda Ripley shares the story of an exchange program that happened in 2018 with a progressive Jewish synagogue in New York City and, a, and corrections officers in Michigan. The temple was called Benai Jeshurun, also known as BJ. These two groups really seemed to only share citizen in the same country. They were as far apart as they could be politically, in their social views and their life experiences. And they were moving further apart in America's widening political landscape. But they all signed up for an exchange program in which they would go and live with one another for about three days. And Martha was one of the volunteers. She was a member of the BJ congregation. She was an Ivy, Love, Ivy League level educated academic. She had started the women's study program at Smith College. She was married to a woman and had an active Jewish faith. About those on the other side, she said, 
I didn't know anyone I could have a conversation with. They were only stereotypes to me. Martha was paired with Caleb, who was a corrections officer for this exchange. And so when she arrived in Michigan, she was a little nervous. Um, but Caleb's family cleared out of their personal bedrooms to make room for Martha and her companions. And for three days, they entered into the world of Caleb and his fellow corrections officers. They went to a firing range. They looked at Caleb's guns. They visited a prison museum. They ate ice cream. And they learned about the anti-slavery history of that part of Michigan. They heard about the criminal justice system from the corrections officer's perspective. And in this process of eating and sharing and living together, they became fellow humans to each other and even friends. Differences in perspectives remained between them when the corrections officers visited New York City a few months later, but they greeted each other warmly as friends this time. The officers attended services at the synagogue. They slept in small New York City apartments. They went to Central Park. They ate vegan kosher food, discovered that the city was safer and more friendly than they had imagined, and they were even given 20 minutes to take photos and visit the gift shop at Trump Tower. They had hard conversations, though, about things like gay marriage and poverty. But still, the goodbyes were tearful when it came time to separate, and the group's con connection continued on social media and through email for many months. Four months later, when a man opened fire in a Pittsburgh synagogue, the Michigan group wrote a letter of solidarity to their New York friends, and they sent two of the corrections officers to read it in that weekend's Shabbat services. They all signed it, and this is what it said. We are writing today as conservative, patriotic Americans. We believe America is indeed an exceptional place that has served as a unique symbol and model to the world. As such, we have seen enough of the divisive politics that separate our country and are calling for an end to any rhetoric that confuses hate and fear-mongering with patriotism. We must stop this before America stops being America. The pandemic, the killing of George Floyd, and the racial politics in our country, and the tumult of the last few years have distanced the two groups once again. But Martha says that she still wonders about Caleb. She wonders how he's seeing unfolding events in our world. She wants to know his perspective, and she finds it harder to, to just put out assumptions about the other side anymore because now that side has a face and a name. In reflection on her experience with this exchange, she said, I feel like this brought out the best in me. This is the possibility of collecting connection. Would you pray with me? Oh God, give us ears to hear what you are saying to us today, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So in Matthew 9, this passage that Joni read for us, we see Jesus walking throughout the land, collecting connection with a variety of folks. He first goes to the despised tax collector, to Matthew, and invites Matthew to join him. And the first thing that they do is they go and have dinner with other tax collectors. Tax collectors were seen as accomplices to the invading Roman Empire, and they were known to line their pockets through corruption and how they, collect, how they collected taxes. So Jesus proceeds to eat dinner with them. He breaks bread with those whose livelihoods are an offense to everyone around them. But he sits with them, he eats with them, he listens to them, and he invites them in so doing to have loyalty to a different empire, to the realm of God's love. And then the story continues when Jesus is approached by Jairus, who is a wealthy man who is begging Jesus to heal his daughter. Jesus, Jairus sets aside his own prestige and his own privilege to plead for his daughter's life. And Jesus not only offers his healing, but also his physical presence, offering to go with Jairus and to be with his daughter. And on the way, a woman approaches Jesus, a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she touches, it says, the fringes of Jesus' garment in Greek. These are likely the, the fringes of the Jewish prayer shawl that Jesus was wearing. And her bleeding would have been excluding her from being able to worship in the temple or participate fully in her society. In another gospel, the text says that she had lost all of her money in order to find a cure for what was wrong. She was willing to try anything. She owns her actions, claims her experience, and insists that hope and healing is possible by reaching out to touch this garment. And Jesus senses her clothes. He turns around and sees her. He offers her healing, and her bleeding stops. And when Jesus finally reaches Jairus' daughter, she has already died. And so in a quiet circle with her parents and away from judging eyes, Jesus raises her back to life and restores her to her family, back into the circle of connection. These three vignettes show Jesus collecting connection while defying societal expectations, defying religious rules, defying even death itself. Jesus is setting a new definition of holiness. As Marcus Borg reflected, the politics of purity are replaced by a politics of compassion. Jesus shows that the path of following him is a way of being in proximity with others, being close to others, especially those on the margins. And it's also an ethic of mercy, not judgment, not even forgiveness, an ethic of mercy. Simply put, we're invited to get close up to others, especially those who are different than we are, those who are suffering, those who are outside the circles of belonging, those we don't understand. And we're invited to go with a posture of mercy, 
not asking anyone to defend themselves or prove their worth, but assuming their value and seeing their humanity without question. How do we know when we're connecting that way? I always think this is what Martha was describing when she looked back on her experience of befriending Caleb, someone who could not have been more different than her, that this brought out the best in her. In my own words, when we reach out across differences, across what divides us, we find our true selves, and we find the joy of offering compassion to others. This has been um, my personal experience in one very specific instance, and as I read Martha's story and read this text, um, and as I thought about this month being Pride Month, um, I thought I would share with you my journey of coming to fully embrace LGBTQIA folks. I don't think I've ever shared that here before, so it seemed appropriate to talk about it today. Like many of you, I grew up in a faith tradition that did not affirm different sexual orientations and gender identities. We certainly never talked about it, and I didn't think I knew anybody who was gay. And then about 20 years ago, a letter arrived in our post box. My husband's cousin, who I absolutely adored, came out to us in a brave and authentic letter. And he expressed his concern that he would lose his relationship with us because of our faith, because he knew how important our faith was, and he was afraid that that faith would exclude him. And all of a sudden, this wasn't an issue that was in a certain neighborhood in San Francisco, or about folks on the periphery of our circles. This was our beloved cousin, Bruce. Chris and I agonized over how to respond. We wanted to do right by our faith and by Bruce, and we didn't know if we could do both. We sent a letter that essentially said our faith did not lead us to judge him, and that our love and embrace of him remained unchanged. I worried that I was falling into, and for those of you who grew up in these circles, into a relativistic stance, or somehow denying Christian orthodoxy, but I'll never forget the day that I mailed that letter. I was surprised by what I felt. It was, I felt like, and it, the thought just came to me, I feel closer to Jesus than I ever have in my life. I feel like I did something that he would have done. The politics of purity were replaced by proximity and compassion and mercy. And who was changed most in the process? It was me. My journey from that day has been one of really deep joy as I have leaned into authentic connection with many LGBTQ folks. The most Jesus-y person I went to seminary with is a gay man. The most profoundly faith-filled wedding ceremony that I have officiated was for two women. The best leadership coach I have ever had is a trans man. And every year on our wedding anniversary, I joyfully celebrate that we share the same wedding anniversary with Bruce and his husband Scott. With each of these relationships, something 
has gotten healed inside of me and I hope inside of them too as we collect connection together and find that all the rules that we thought to find our faith fall apart in the holy proximity of friendship. This has not been an exclusively a, a feel-good, make-other-people-happy kind of journey, although it has included that as well. But as I read and studied scripture and what it had to say about this issue, I discovered that there are many valid ways to interpret the scripture on this topic. You can read it all sorts of ways. But I had choices to make about which was the lens through which I would read those scriptures. What else would I bring to bear in my reading? This week, my friend Amy shared a comic with me that summed up kind of what I decided. There's a Jesus standing next to a group of very stern-looking, church-going folks. They all have their Bible tucked under their arm. And Jesus says to them, the difference between me and you is you use scripture to determine what love means, and I use love to determine what scripture means. Love and mercy and proximity. I would take it even further. Those are what I actually think scripture teaches us, because that's what we see in Jesus. These are the methods that Jesus used to understand what truth is. This is what he used to do his ministry. And as Jesus' followers, we are to use them too. With each step he took, Jesus was always asking, what does love require of me here? What does it require of you in this situation? It is that love that directed his steps and that love that for, is to form the content and the shape of our faith. This year, Session, our church's board, decided to put up pride signs for the first time in VPC's history. We didn't do this because everyone else is doing it. We did it because of what it would mean to those who feel like they are on the margins of welcome in churches. We did it so that in a world where LGBTQ voices are being criminalized and even put to death, we are known to, as a safe space that welcomes these voices. We did it because we want to stand with Jesus in being led by proximity and mercy and love. We did it because we are also taking action with our words, supporting Kingdom Camp for LGBTQ youth that has been founded and is run by Pepa Paniagua, who grew up in this church. We did it because we still have so much to learn, and we want to get closer to, to keep learning and keep growing. Rachel Held Evans said this. She said, I had a conversation with someone the other day who said he wondered if perhaps LGBT Christians had a special role to play in teaching the church how to more thoughtfully engage issues surrounding gender and sexuality. I told him I didn't think that that went far enough. I've been convinced that LGBT Christians have a special role to play in teaching the world how to be Christian. Christians who tell each other the truth. Christians who confess our sins and forgive our enemies. Christians who embrace our neighbors. Christians who sit together in our pain and in our healing and wait for resurrection. So this is one way 
we here at the church are seeking to collect connection. But there are so many other ways. Just a few weeks ago, I went and, and spent an afternoon with some extended family folks who, who we disagree politically and, and social issues, and yet we had the most beautiful afternoon. And as I told my sister afterwards, I said, I think it's good for them to know that there are some liberals who love them and for me to know there's some conservatives who love me. <laughs> But whatever, wherever you stand on these issues, I don't like the, the, the terms or the labels, and yet that's in this proximity, in this mercy, and in this love is how we begin to truly see each other. And this summer, we are inviting you to collect connection, however that might look for you. One of our VPC values says, dropping our masks, we invite each other to be our true selves. I can't tell you how glad I am to be a part or a little farther away from every time I say dropping our masks, everyone starts giggling because we did that pre-pandemic. <laughs> but dropping our masks, we invite each other to be our true selves. Beyond wearing or not wearing our physical masks, the challenge remains to love each other into being our true selves, the self that we, I believe is hidden with Christ in God. And in doing so, we find Jesus. We get to be closer to Jesus. And we get to be the hands and feet of Christ's love in this world. Amen.